Like Almighty One, our sacrifice begins. We commence. A podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It's time to party like it's 1974. Hey, do you guys remember the year 2016? Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were competing for Mr. and Mrs. America. Justin Bieber was at the top of the charts, and people were gleefully wandering into traffic while playing Pokemon Go. And if you were anything like me, you weren't paying attention to any of that crap because you were obsessed with DCC RPG. So today we're going to take a look at all the amazing contributions made by folks like us from our community way back in 2016. I am Judge Jeff, and with me today is Judge Jen. Who's experiencing a bit of temporal distortion. Was Pokemon Go that long ago? Sure was. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And Judge Julian. Hi. Let's head on over to the tavern. <laughs> Welcome, friends. Good to see you. I only had one drink to calm my nerves. And give it a drink of your most expensive. Tavern talk. All right, I've uh, pulled up my stool and placed an order for some grog. And while we're waiting for it to show up, uh, Jen, what have you been up to in gaming? Uh, got more Metamorphosis Alpha, which is awesome. I'm playing a robot, which means the minute this airs, I'll probably die right afterwards. Um, yep. And hey, there's this Metamorphosis Alpha Kickstarter out there. It's part of the Goodman family, so I feel obligated to mention it. Um, our first ed group, our AD&D group, just finished like a couple days ago, the Desert of Desolation, which Ooh. was a huge campaign, and we're so glad to be out of the desert. But lots of fun and we're getting a bit of a revamp to our table again in the lineup which is really awesome uh, cipher system was really cool speaking of temporal distortion and it looks like i'm going to be bringing some rats of ilthmar with me over to the uk which will be very very awesome and i know some certain contest winners that will be very very happy to see this thing in print finally well hopefully customs won't give you a hard time bringing those rats through I mean, Vance offered, Vance the cat, offered to hold them here, but yeah. Mm. (laughs) I've got to specify that since the Vance episode. Things got really (laughs) confusing. But don't you have to deal with the Link Megxit? No. Oh. Oh. That's hurtful, man. I I have been talking about just taking a ferry from Dublin or something. (laughs) (laughs) Julian, what are you up to? Uh, well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, so we have uh, been uh, doing our City of the Dam stuff. I'm getting ready uh, to run some games at Con uh, of the North here in about two weeks. Set on starting on Valentine's Day, just to really drive home the point that you're a loser nerd with no life. We'll run this convention on Valentine's Day every year. I think it's actually around President's Day, and it just happens to f- kind of overlap with Valentine's Day, but still, it seems hey, kind hey, of... It, it, you might not be a loser. You might be one of those cool people whose significant other goes to the con with you. Come on. Yeah. Or you might be a cool person who thinks Valentine's Day is stupid. Yeah. That too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I've Sorry, never, Julian. <laughs> I've never been those people. So, I mean, I do kind of think it's stupid, but uh, anyway. Um, so we did a, we ran in on New Year's Eve. I ran into an old friend and was talking with his kids that he'd brought along to uh, younger sons about playing D&D. And to make a long story short, we got together and ran some AD&D for his two boys, their first ever full-on D&D game. They made first-level characters. They brought in first-level characters on notebook paper. Nice. Uh, both dad and the boys. And uh, I ran uh, Mike's Dungeons, which uh, is fairly new product from Jeffrey McKinney of Carcosa fame. It is a 78-level dungeon, and Jeez. it is uh, it is all uh, one-page hand-drawn maps with a one-page dungeon key on the opposite page, and just uh, 78 pairs of uh, you know pages like that. So it is uh, hysterical <laughs> and uh, awesome and silly at the same time. So it makes it sort of awesomely silly. I uh, had a great time uh, playing that. And uh, those guys, I wanted want more, and uh, hopefully we'll be playing some more Mike's Dungeons with them, or whatever they whatever trouble they get into. And then uh, I also got in the mail from Mr. Sean Richard the new the newer Terror of the Stratosphere 1.5, which was really fun. It has two patrons in there. I'm not going to do a long review, but they they there's a class in there with a network com artist. A human com artist is the name of the class. He specializes in turning mechanical traps into network devices. And uh, he has various network and trap-related talents, including turning mechanical traps into his animated trap familiars. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. But you can he can actually have like weird little traps following him around as his familiars, or her familiars, of course. Uh, so enough said about that. And then there's a couple patron write-ups uh, the third of which is, uh, gosh, what's the name? Hence, uh, Razor Warren, henceforth the Shaft, the god, the patron of elevators, who um, apparently is the space-time demiurge of all elevator kind and can conjure elevators to fall down upon you and, uh, and raise you up to your uh, places you need to go and lose you in the space-time continuum elevation-wise and all that stuff. So just to, if it wasn't clear enough, it's uh, pretty nutty stuff like the first one and had a great time with it. Um, and there's a new Kickstarter for number two that he's got running right now. So I'll link that in the show notes. That's really cool. And Julian, there's something else that you've got going on that you haven't spoken about yet. I've noticed that you are emerging from your cocoon as Julian Greybeard. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> it's the weekend. I don't think we always, sometimes I shave it on Sunday morning and uh, just to try to get myself ready for the rat race world that starts on Monday every week. And then other times I'm just too lazy. So yeah, sometimes it grows out a little bit. It, uh, you know, yeah. I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah. Sometimes people are just like, hey, could you wash your face? <laughs> wow. It doesn't really grow in very fast is what I'm saying. Fair. What about you, Jeff? For me, I, um, I've run another session of Mothership for the 
Cleveland role-playing game meetup group. And they got a little bit further this time. In the first session, they didn't get off the first page. In the second session, they've now gone to about the second page of the module. Have they... Did they TPK the first time or no? They did. They TPK'd the first time. They all survived the second adventure. And I mean, I'll admit like right now between work and school, I just have no free time and I'm exhausted right now. So I told myself, I'm like, okay, when I go there and I run this session, like no matter what happens, I'm going to let the guys know that this is going to be the end of the session. Um, after the second, after the second adventure, it was just so fun and I still want to see what happens. So they're like, you're going to do this again in two weeks, right? I'm like, oh, of course. So ah, crap. <laughs> doing it again in two weeks, uh, yeah. but it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. And last night we had, there's a monthly get together for the same meetup group at this, uh, diner. And I went there and got to experience shadow of the demon Lord for the first time, uh, played a little, one session, zero level Shadow of the Demon Lord adventure, and it was really fun. I was a um, orcish eunuch with uh, with a magical of blonde wig were. that could uh, <laughs> a, it could take any shape it wanted. And we were hanging out with this. Uh, but but what what character did you get to play? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was really fun uh but yeah so that was that's that's my gaming adventure for the time being so let's go take a look at some emails i call upon the flame to suck you i will deliver the message for me i came here to give you these facts summon email all right jen what do we got uh looks like this first one is another from our friend Judge Stefan slash Stefan, last name Surratt. Hola, jueces J. What adventure has a group slash faction slash cult slash patron that you love and feels needs more love in a follow-up adventure or product? I've heard rumors of a follow-up to Queen of Elfland's Son, but what others come to mind? That's a great question, Judge Stefan. Um, you know, off the top of my head, uh, I would love to see more Carnifex, but I know that Mr. Stroh is really, really busy. So, any pop into your mind, Julian? Well, he did more Carnifex stuff in the annual, though, right? That was kind of cool. Um, That may or may not have been ghostwritten, but yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I mean, not saying it was... Information on the Carnifex, I'd love to see her in more adventures. Mm, mm. Uh, you know, she was mentioned in... Uh, oh, God, the... The, the one where you go try to save your party member who died. Uh, beyond um, the Black Gate? Yes, thank No? Is that the one? No, no, that's the Blades one. Blades Against Death? Blades thank Against you. Death, yes. That's the one. Yes. Uh, because it's set in Punjar and there's mention of it, and you can actually go into a temple where something is being held, but you don't actually get to see the Carnifex anymore. Hmm. So I would love to see some more action with the Carnifex in it, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I didn't, uh, I, I'd be interested in some, I, I know this Cezricon's kind of the primary mascot of everything, but I think it would be kind of amusing to see like this, the order of Cezricon and all the weirdos who end up getting, you know, press ganged into working for him. And especially since it's probably not a cult, it's more like, um, guys with a really shitty job type of thing, you know, like, it's, I don't know. 
So that's just what first oh, thing. That... Yes. Have you read the seven deadly pits of Cezarkon? You are so dead yeah, on there. Dude. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. That's the first thing that I mean, there's so all the patrons and stuff, their cults and orders aren't really super fleshed out. So, you know, that's uh, I think a lot of them would be good candidates. So there's potential for. Yeah, a lot of them. How about you, Jeff? You know, um, reading this email, I don't know that there's a specific one that immediately comes to mind. I mean, there's a lot of them that I love that I would love to see more of. You know, the Horned King is really fun. Um, I would love to spend some more time with that crazy... Oh, I forgot to... Ah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I would, of course, love to see more of uh, the adventures of the talking book in the library from the Wizardarium of Calabraxis. but um, yeah, that's uh, that's what immediately comes to mind, I guess. Of course, I will, I'll never turn down more Bugba Bill's fun. There's two cults, actually, because the Croaking Fane has like the rival frog cults. Bugba Bill's and the Solentetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetetet
I don't want a second official new edition of the game. I've been through too many of the old D&D edition wars, and I really don't want to see one start in DCC. Sure, we all get along pretty good now, but just wait until a second edition comes out and suddenly there is an official rule on whether you roll over or under your luck score and if wizards can cast healing spells or not. I'm joking a little here, but truth be told, we each have our own edition of game that we play at our home tables, and we bring some of that special gaming spice with us when we run con games as well. The DCC community has so much great third-party content that for a very minimal price, you can usually find whatever you're looking for to add to your home game. Gamers are like car gearheads. We buy a car off the lot, and the first thing we're doing is replacing the fuel injector with some aftermarket <laughs> doohickey to make it go faster. We're awesome like that. Yeah. Thirdly, vampires. When I was 10 years old, I was in an after-school Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> game. It was October, and my fifth-level cleric of Ares, Ambron, had to square off against his first-ever vampire. It was a near-TPK for our group, and the DM did a great job of making a regular vampire out of the monster manual terrifying. When I walked home the four blocks from school that night, I kept looking over my shoulder and found my pace quickening until I was almost at a jog by the time I got home. What's my point? My point is to make our vampires and werewolves however you want them, but if the DM does a good job... Uh, does a good enough job. Even a bog standard right out of the book vampire can scare the bejesus out of your players and create a memory that will last for decades. May all your hits be crits, Judge Gary. P.S. I don't deliberately derail Julian with text during the podcast. It just works out that way. There you have it. I'm off the hook. Well said, Gary. Way to take one for the team. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I have nothing to say other than bravo, and I agree with all the above. I'm impressed you actually read the whole thing. Uh, you know, he he know, you know, believe me, I st- I'd be hearing you about hear it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Why did you take that paragraph out? Um, so I will say this. Because it belonged in a second email. Yeah. Or why <laughs> didn't you why didn't you text it to me? Ha <laughs> ha. So um, I'll say this. I don't at all, of course, want a second official edition of the game. Uh, and the annual to me, as we were joking about briefly while we did our annual episodes, to me has is almost kind of a second edition. And of course, Lankmar is also not exactly a second edition, but a different alternative edition or way that you can play. Um, has some different options and stuff like that. It's like a sidestep to the system. Yeah, it's a it's not a it's not a second edition. It's a a bunch of it's a toolbox is what it is actually and uh, an annual same thing but I would say I would like a basic edition of the game and what I mean like the quick start rules I was just about to say that yeah maybe like that but I mean just I I don't know I I would like a I, I would say even smaller than that I would like a 10 page 5 by 8 version oh like the uh oh Jeez, yeah. We're, I, we're all stammering on this one. The, the quick start um, rules are pretty complete. And uh, what I would like is something that has the spirit of DCC and all the crazy the craziness of it, but is just less words, actually. Not not just, you know, the class descriptions and, and fewer spells. And, and then once you get past the classes, the core of the game is pretty simple anyway. But it's probably just sort of a simplification and streamlining of the classes and spells, because that's where most of the stuff comes. Well, I have good news for you, my friend. Um, our buddy James Smith from Cincinnati 
uh, wrote a little thing called Pamphlet Crawl Classics. Mm. And oh, yeah. the entire thing uh, is on a little fourfold. And if that's just a little too streamlined for you, go with the reference book. Well, the reference book is nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the opposite. That's nothing but tables. But, but um, there's pamph- not a whole lot in the way of spells and all that. Well, it, it's no, that's true. All the stuff that is usually referenced outside of spellcasting. Yeah. No, I'm. You know, I, I've just I've been noodling that idea for a long time. So I've never heard of pamphlet crawl classics. So I'll have to. Is that released? Have you seen it? I think he was giving it out at GaryCon last year. Oh, I see. I don't even rate. Ian Rick. I got mine at WayneCon. You got to go down to the uh, the forums where they're playing uh, Gaslands. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, I, a lot of stuff comes out of that weird chili spaghetti town. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So uh, let's head on over to the meat of this episode. Let the combat begin! Why behold, our hero. Oh, so you want to play rough, eh? Well, take this. Mighty Deeds. Okay, gang, here we are. We're talking about the Gong Farmer's Almanac from 2016. And uh, Jen and Julian did not know that I was going to do this, but we're going to roll a die and see which one we go with first. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, I just rolled a one. So we're actually going with the first one. So the first one we're going with is going to be mine. It'll be... Uh, the Ring of Gelatinous Form by Stephen Murish. Rigged. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I really did roll a one. Uh, so the what, Ring what of Gelatinous you, Form. Were you rolling a D9 or a D3? Or how are you doing this exactly? I rolled a D10 and I was just going to ignore a 10 if I rolled a 10. Oh, I see. So Or call it a one. We'll call that a D9. <laughs> so looking here at... The Ring of Gelatinous Form by Stephen Murish. So here we have um, one ring to gloop them all, mm. one ring to <laughs> blind them, one ring to glop them all, and in a jelly slime them. Uh, that is a quote by <laughs> Zegon the Odd, heard sing- singing madly down a street before his disappearance. Nicely done. Yes, thank you, thank you. I take full credit for that. And I'm uh, saying, S- Stephen, nicely done. Yes. What? No, no. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> no, Stephen, very, very, very beautifully done. So this ring of gelatinous form is a pretty fun find. Essentially, when you put this ring on, uh, you slowly start to, um, the first time you do it, it takes you about 10 minutes to become gelatinous. But like, it feels real good. Like you really <laughs> like the way it feels wearing your ring of gelatinous form. And in fact, you like it so much, you, you kind of don't want to take it off. Um, and when you do take it off, you kind of want to put it back on. And the more you wear it, the quicker you take on gelatinous form. And soon you can also start t- making your bones gelatinous. And now you are a gelatinous amorphous blob. And the more often you do this and the longer you spend doing it, the higher and higher the will saves become uh, in order to actually take the ring off. And there have been many people who have um, ended their days by just uh, fully succumbing to the desire and they just become a permanent little blob object wandering around the sewers. Now, in addition to this, this ring of gelatinous form 
also um, really wants to be found by other people. So even while you're wearing it, it's sending dreams out to powerful wizards and cultists because it wants to spread the love of jelly. So even while you're wearing it, you might be having other people who show up who want to take your ring from you uh, because it's a pretty nice ring that you've got there. Rude. (laughs) Um, So yeah, there's lots of things this ring does. Uh, Like when you're wearing it, you take um, a lot less damage from certain types of weapons. It affects your crit hits. Decapitation for you no longer means death. Um, It just means that like your senses are now located over there until you can get your head back on your body. You don't need to sleep. You don't need to breathe. Uh, Things like that. Um, You're immune to mind-altering effects. Your intelligence goes down. You're invisible in water. Um, Any parts of your body you cut off can instantly be rejoined. So there's lots of fun things you can do with this uh, little ring here. So thank you, Stephen, for this um, fun little addition to your to a campaign. And that is from that, uh, volume three, right? Correct. That is from volume three Monsters on page 22. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, which, could you guys see yourself using this item in a game you were running? Oh, yeah. I was thinking about it just reading it today. I would love to mess with those guys. properties of it yes (laughs) it also has one of the i mean so there's amazing art throughout the volume and there's a bunch of ben mara art who's one of my favorites so hats off to ben um but this has one of the coolest pictures of the gelatinizing person with the giant (laughs) ring on his finger it's really pretty cool it is really cool it's just like this kind of skeleton who looks like he's just covered in like like melted wax or something it's very cool I mean, even the title page illustration for these volumes uh, by yeah. Mark Radle. I'm like, what What happened to this dude? Why, why is he not more prolific in DCC stuff these days? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. All right, so now we're rolling a D8, and Uh-oh. we'll see which one is next. This time I rolled an 8, so this is uh, Gen number 3. Okay, okay. Uh, well, bouncing down there then. Okay, uh, so this was 2016, which means it was written coincidentally around the same time that Lankrai was being uh, edited, put together, compiled, etc. Diogo uh, Nogueira, in Volume 1, he has two little articles that kind of dovetail together for me. One is Drunk's Luck. And the other is House Rule, Adventuring Companion. And these caught my eye because they're very... Oh, He mentions it's in the spirit of Fawford and the Grey Mouser. So if you maybe don't have the Lankmar box set, if you don't have the Compendium of Secret Knowledge with the rules differences, but you want parts of your game to kind of emulate Appendix N, you want to do something that's a little bit more... Uh, shall we say, not in a dungeon. Uh, There are things where you have an alcohol limit or there's a drink to soothe the pain. After combat or action, you can roll your hit die minus one die type. So warriors would roll a d10 then, unless you happen to have a d11 handy. 
and you can recover hit points with beverages. Uh, you can receive a point of luck if you have actually been served more than your alcohol limit. Fun things like that. With the adventuring companion, this kind of dovetails into the... It's a cross between the halfling luck and what ended up in the Lankmark set as Split Soul Hero, where you and another player at the table are Sorry, character. Uh, you can spend luck to affect the die rolls of your adventuring companion as if they were his own. At the end of an adventure, you could recover a point of luck if you have spent luck during the adventure to help your companion, especially in dramatic situations. At the end of an adventure, you can recover a point of luck if you finish the adventure together, safe and mostly sound. And just fun things like that. Uh, you could lose a point of luck each time you willingly take da actions to damage or undermine or betray your adventuring companion. So it, it's kind of a, again, a sidestep, not into Lankmar, but if you want to make a, a nice city-based thing or, it, again, just trying to emulate the Appendix N. So I, I really appreciated that one. And I feel like it dovetails really nicely with Gary's email about how, you know, you can really take any little thing to add to DCC to make it kind of fit the flavor you want. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't feed the animals. <laughs> well, if your adventuring companion dies, you lose 1d4 points of luck and you have to wait at least a d4 months before being able to choose another adventuring companion and forge another strong bond with another character. Hmm. It is. A, that's a pretty cool rule. I would. I, I really. I was reading that earlier today too, and I was uh, going through there, and I was thinking uh, it's a really cool concept. I didn't even think of the split soul hero thing, but yeah, that's there um, later in Lankmar. But the it, it appears later, but I think it was actually written before, so it's really oh interesting yeah yeah hand, uh, sure you know, sure sure coming in kind of simultaneously, just getting published. Soon. Yeah, I was thinking about like. Which of my which you know which players in my campaign, like current campaign or older campaigns or whatever, like is it going to be Trevor and Clint are going to? And then I was trying to imagine people getting adventuring companion stuff with each other, and I was I wasn't sure how it's going to work in implementation wise, but there are probably some that it would work with. That's kind of like the halfling look too. Yeah, take on that. Yep, yep, yep. And those are both in volume one which is Men, Magic, and Drink. And this year we actually have eight volumes listed all in the front table of contents. Woo! <laughs> Jen can't sneak in a hidden volume on us this time. I, I actually only have six, so I only read six. So seven, and if you're in seven and eight, I apologize. It's four bucks on Lulu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bra. Oh, I've got the originals. Well, yeah. I have those too, but... but. Okay. This is so much handier. <laughs> Rolling a D7 now. We've got a two, which means we're going to gen number one. Oh, geez. You got to listen to me again? I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. Staying in volume one, I could not resist featuring the enhanced spell burn rules mm. given to us by Doug Keister, our friend from Colorado that we don't see anymore. 
And as an aside, man, just like last time, this is like going through a yearbook. It's like, man, where's that guy been? I haven't seen him since we graduated, man. <laughs> hmm. Where are these people? So enhanced spellburn. Uh, there's the option for communal spellburn, where if all of the casters of a certain class agree to it, one caster can step forward and draw upon the other's stats to put forth into a big, huge spell. Uh, there's. I actually thought that was in the core book. I thought ritual casting was in the core book. Uh, ritual casting is, but they don't necessarily um, go into drawing the life force of the other casters that are there. Gotcha, gotcha. Ritual casting is there. Ritual spell burn, not so much. Okay. Uh, sacrifice of non-physical ability scores, just like what it sounds like. You can sacrifice named abilities. Yeah, maybe some demons crave things by name. They want your strength or they want your intelligence. So you have to burn those in order to cast the spell. Uh, there are avaricious entities. Some entities might only accept sacrifices of specific abilities and may be angered by sacrifices other than desired. That one's a lot of fun. Uh, that boils down to that's great. You spell burned four points. That's really only going to add two points to your spell. Sorry. And then probably the best one is the permanent sacrifice. So we all know rules is written. If you spell burn and roll a nat one, those stats are lost forever. But that's not a choice that you've made at the beginning. If you go into it saying, I am burning X amount of stats permanently. They, it becomes a one for four toward your spell. One point of spell burn permanently equals four points toward your spell. And it does sacrifice, it does force a roll on the minor corruption table before the spell check is even rolled. <laughs> because that sort of thing should leave a mark. Now, if you fail on any of these checks, specifically the permanent sacrifices. Uh, what I love is that you are bumped up. If it says minor corruption, if you roll an at one, you're bumped up not to major, but to greater. If it says uh, major, you get two graders. And if you make the roll that you get saddled with greater corruption, you roll on the greater corruption chart three times. And I like that it says uh, when using these rules for enhanced spellburn, the reward the rewards are greater, so the risk should be greater as well. Exactly, and of course, there's the ultimate sacrifice in instances of great need. Uh, acting alone, this magic user may sacrifice the whole of his body and soul to an otherworldly entity to power a single spell, and as a dying act. Jeff, this is right up your alley. <laughs> As a dying act, the magic user casts a final spell that automatically achieves the maximum effect listed in the spell description with the addition that the effects of the spell are tripled as appropriate and any dice are bumped up one of the dice chain. For example, if you're casting magic missile as an ultimate sacrifice, normally it'd be 3d4 plus two missiles that 
go off at a D10 plus caster level. This would be nine D5 plus six missiles for three D12 plus three times caster level damage per missile. Hmm. So, yeah, I can just see you with color spray, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) And right now I'm trying to think what would be the most fun spell to get triple the maximum effect on. Well, I mean, you're sacrificing your character for it. Sure. And I kind of love that, too. Fireball. Because from, you know, Fireball? from a campaign standpoint. What about enlarge? Oh. <laughs> and that's beautiful for the judge, because then I'd be able to take this and make it. It would end up being an annual day of recognition. You know, that site would be scorched forever with Fireball, of course. And there'd be a little plaque dedicated to you <laughs> if, the, if there's if the world isn't a burnt cinder at that point but yeah so in large the caster transforms himself or one target into a giant of truly godlike proportions the target grows to a height of up to 100 feet at the caster's <laughs> discretion so how about 300 feet guys the so target you can sell yourself to to cast enlarge on someone, make them Godzilla. Okay. Or I can kill myself to cast enlarge on my dead body and crush the entire <laughs> <laughs> the entire countryside. Let's see. Uh, yeah, there there would definitely be the permanent magical reverberation in that place. Yeah. Let's see the thirty six plus on the fireball. The caster <laughs> launches a fireball at a target up to one mile away. Doing twenty d six damage. Oh, oh wow. God. so three miles away and sixty d six damage. The caster can choose an area of effect ranging from a single human sized target up to a sphere of a uh, forty foot radius, so a hundred twenty foot radius for sixty d six. Sixty d seven. Well, I guess Ooh. that means we need to start buying more d sevens. Yeah. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jen. Um, so, and you thought you had enough exactly. DCC dice. Oh, no, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> I will say that uh, I'm ready to implement that rule, no problem. I, I think it's a good rule. And I, yes. I, I, think, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, the fiction would generally support that. But um, exactly. the penultimate sacrifice, what about that? They missed it. Doug, Keister. <laughs> Actually, I really like this, and I almost picked it myself. It's a, it's a very cool section. But penultimate sacrifice is very similar to ultimate sacrifice, but it's when you sacrifice a party member instead of yourself. <laughs> Dude, not cool. Which All ties right. into something we'll discuss later, but anyway, enough said. No, e- even with the ritual stuff, the others have to be willing for the... F- first caster to draw upon their life force so i feel i feel my future gong farmer submission coming on but because you don't already have them yeah yeah we'll we'll hit that later i'm sure all right time for a d6 great i'm rolling a three so julian it's julian number two julian number two oh well okay see this is a great segue all right perfect so uh, this is uh, making. I think it makes the opposite point that you think it makes. <laughs> uh, I'm 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 gonna just say that uh, it's it's talking about. This is the essay uh, by Steve Bean in Volume Two, 
It is toward the back here, page 53. I fought the law and the law won, making law in DCC as badass as chaos. Um, <laughs> and there is a, I don't know, several page essay on using law in chaos. Um, Steve, uh, you may or may not know, he talks about it, is a... Uh, his inf- one of his biggest influences from Appendix N is uh, Amber uh, by Zelazny, and he talks about the uh, you know the sort of original myths of Amber and stuff like that. But um, he just talks about the you know in the literature, law is kind of more important than chaos generally. Heroes are usually sort of posited to be on the side of law. Um, and yet, I think, uh, and then they're understood to be very powerful in terms of how organized they are, and the uh, how if you align yourself with the forces of law, you know the resources you'll get to, because they'll supply you with equipment, maybe a little bit of, maybe the odd magical potion, but probably plenty of advice, maybe some healing, and so on. So, um, you know, he's sort of saying, well. Isn't it um, isn't it weird that we sort of emphasize the chaos uh, more than the law? You know, when we're just playing DCC, and I I sort of get where he's coming from. I'm not sure that everybody plays it that way, but I think there is a certain sort of Doug Con murder hobo ish uh, ethic in the game, right? And so I get where he's coming from in saying that. I'm not sure that, like, say that people have always implemented it that way in all uh, my games. Yeah, that's it's definitely they tend towards chaos I would say so that's probably fair um, anyway there's a lot of food for thought in here and I, I found myself uh, pretty interested he talks about you know f- flesh out militant orders you know flesh out the temples and organizations that could help PCs more make that more attractive encourage them to uh, play, full, play lawful characters and stuff and then he, he makes a really good point like why would a lawful god give you disapproval if you were pursuing lawful meat, you know, lawful goals, right? If you're actually diligently serving them uh, and pursuing their aims, you can see why a chaos god would, right? Or maybe a neutral Cthulhu god, because of course he's indifferent, it's indifferent to your uh, you know, your whatever your deeds are anyway, your suffering (laughs) or deeds or whatever, but why would a lawful god turn a blind eye or, or even give you a bad effect for that? And you know, so it made sense. As I was thinking about it, I thought to myself, the, the, in a sense, the reason that we don't... I think there's a worldview amongst DCC players that's kind of atheistic and nihilistic. And the way the reason we don't suck up to law is because we tend to be suspicious of establishments anyway, and whether they're fantasy or real, maybe. Um, but if but if you read Tolkien or um, Tolkien especially, you know the the forces of good are definitely aligned with the you know those forces of law, like literally forces of law, the the things that created the world. So anyway, there's plenty to kind of consider there, and it becomes in my mind sort of a tension between the Lovecraftian view of things versus a maybe a little more Tolkien-esque um, Paul Anderson type of view of things. Um, and anyway, I thought it was plenty of food for that. And uh, the last thing I would say is 
One thing that occurred to me was how one reason that we have a less of a view of law stuff in the in the literature and in the adventures and so on is because mostly we're always fighting chaos cults of various flavors, right? But there's no reason that you couldn't actually do a bunch of things with lawful uh, cults and break into their temples and kill their angels and avatars and so on and so forth. So maybe we need to have more adventures against the law giants and so on. I think um, you're right. And I, I one nice thing take. that I really loved about this essay was the section that says law is not synonymous with good. And I'm going to go ahead Thank and you. read a section of it. It says the servants of law can be as restless and ruthless as any agents of chaos. They can be inquisitors, witch hunters, and crusaders. Law has no aversion to violence and no qualms about dealing death. Law views death as a part of order. All things must come to an end is natural law. And at the same time, paradoxically, is also an axiom of chaos. Ah, the joys of philosophy. And thus, (laughs) law is perfectly comfortable with using lethal force to bring about order. Furthermore, to the pursuit of law, law may also employ vicious methods such as torture. Law has absolute certainty about the rightness of its ends and holds as a principle that the needs of the many outweigh any consideration of the individual. Don't hold lawful PCs or NPCs to a standard of behavior that is about being good rather than lawful. Challenge them to explain their actions in terms of how they sacrifice the causes of the rule of law and an, and an, and an ordering of the world, of, of how they advance the causes of the rule of law. Yeah, I, I feel like this could be the topic for an entire show. Oh, oh so. yeah. No, and it reminded me of, of our show where we had Steve on and um, we were mm-hmm. talking about the, you know, simulationist games versus uh, the other, the literature type games and so on. Uh, you know, he's a philosophical guy, obviously, and I tend to be more like, roll for initiative, Steve! You know, but um, yeah. uh, anyway, this is a pretty good essay, and I, I think there's a lot of food for thought. And uh, if you know, it's not just about navel gazing, pontificating stuff, but actually, like, like I said, I thought about, hey, maybe we should have some adventures where we take on a lawful organization instead of you know. And I think there's some interesting springboards to build your own stuff out of it. So uh, take it and do with it what you will, folks. Lawful, not necessarily good. Mm-hmm. Rolling a d5. Got a two. So this is going to be my second contribution. So I am uh, highlighting the Orm lies down in Pujar. Um, I said Pujar. The Orm lies down in Poonjar, not Pujar. And that is in volume three, and it's written by Terry Olson. Terry! Terry! Terry, my friend. So this is the only Gong Farmer's Almanac adventure that I had actually run as an official um, adventure at, uh, with the DCC NYC meetup group. And we had a ton of fun running this thing. Also, this illustration by Benjamin Mara on the front page of this adventure is really stunning. We've got this three panel piece here with this like mighty warrior and this wizard. And they're like fighting these like ooze monsters in the pit of the belly of the of the orm. Uh, but essentially what this adventure is, is you can you can get to this adventure from a handful of ways, but ultimately you end up with the, basically this bottle of liquor that's got some crazy worm on the inside, this like glowing iridescent green worm. And if the adventurers drink it, then what happens is uh, they see like the spectral worm appears before them and then falls into the ground. And once that happens, the 
ground starts to rumble and this giant war- worm um, emerges from the ground and you make a reflex save. And if you miss the reflex save, you are swallowed by it. Um, however, if you save the reflex save, you jump out of the way. Your friends are your friends have been swallowed, but you're okay. But now a bigger one erupts, and there's a higher DC to, to to step out of the way of this one. So yeah, we're being railroaded a little bit here. Uh, but basically, that just keeps happening until everybody is in the belly of the thing. So cool, whatever. But now we're there, and we've got this really fun, very cool adventure. And you know, my first, my the first thing I highlighted was our ring of gelatinous form. And this is also a very kind of oozy, gelatiny kind of adventure. Um, here we are in what is presumably the inside of the body of this uh, horrific uh, spectral worm thing. It's not. It's really just like an alternate dimension, but um, it's got these like fleshy walls. And if you attack the fleshy walls, you also take damage, which is also very much reminding me of the uh, Wayne Snyder uh, mostly Wayne Snyder, but partly Doug Kovacs' Meat Planet adventure. If any of you guys have been on, uh, <laughs> yeah. had it, yeah, if you've experienced any part of Meat Planet, it also very much has an Orm lies down in Punjar vibe to it, which I appreciate. Um, and I don't know, I don't want to give too much away other than just kind of how it begins because it is an adventure. And if there's any, any judges who are listening who want to run it for their players, I don't want to ruin it for any players who may be listening. Uh, but there's there's lots of fun stuff in here. It's very oozy. It's very slimy. Um, and there's good, goopy fun to be had. Looking through it, I was reminded of The Well of the Worm, which was redone for DCC. I think it was done for 4.0 originally. Okay. For the DCC line. Mm-hmm. So it was one of the point fives, but written by Harley and... Yeah, when I ran that one, I was like, "This is a little oogier than I expected." Yeah, it's pretty. That was an, that was one of the first uh, you know of Goodman adventures that I'd run for DCC, and it's pretty it's a pretty fun one. Available in I'm digest like, size. Yes, oogie. Yeah. <laughs> that Mara illustration is off the charts. Again, uh, and he has a he has a DM screen. Have you guys seen this? No, it's not a what? it's not a DCC screen, but. I'm going to put it in video if I can find it here. But it's, uh, I'll link to it. It's off the charts, like crazy lasers. Like this oh, is cool. Me. It's, it's, uh, what do you call it? It's a trifold, um, it's landscape. Landscape set, yeah, landscape format thing. Oh my God, that's gorgeous. Yeah, it's wow. totally off the charts. What's on the other side? Um, I don't know. The other side is kind of boring compared to the outer side because you're the GM and you're looking at your notes, right? So Oh, so it's more art. It's not tables on the other side. No. That, well, it's not, it's, oh, it's system cool. It's system agnostic. So, it, yeah, there's no system in it at okay, all. That is so cool. Yeah. So Amara, is, and he also did some mini comics. In fact, I'd read one of his mini comics called Lasers and Sword. Oh, gosh. I forget what the heck it was. Lasers and swordsmen or something like that. And uh, all right, all right, I'll go over to MeWe and be more active. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, he's not on MeWe that I know, but um Jeez. But he this is you know, I found this in the comic shop like five, six years ago, and then I found out later that like Job knows this guy or something. Um and he's yeah, he's a great artist. I love his stuff. I'd love to get some art from him maybe one day. Nice. Well, now I'm throwing down a Caltrop, and we'll see who's going next. 
I got a four on the Caltrops. So this is Julian. This is your number three. Ah, okay. I wanted, I'm going to ask for some audience participation here, like our last... Uh, like my our last gong farmer. Let me find this one is uh, the planar uh, intervention article. I believe it's in volume six here. And uh, yes, two thousand sixteen. Yes. Yep. Volume six to halls of Valhalla and back again. Okay. Uh, so this is an article by Mr. Hirschberger and Mr. Carnes, and uh, it's not a. It's it's a nice little compact article it talks about planar travel and uh, it gives a, a nice long you know discussion of planar travel and all and talks about the a uh, little bit about the Gygaxian origins of that and throughout the article there's a lot of references to the DMG to some old issues of dragon you know it's kind of AD&D focused as you might expect but also has plenty of DCC stuff um, but, but of course the good stuff is it gets to a uh, it gets to a cool table where you can have planar encounters or mishaps. And the basic idea, in a nutshell, is that anytime you cast a planar step or any other type of planar travel, you have a 35% chance of having a planar issue. Uh, and then it can be either a mis a uh, encounter or a mishap. So here's the thing, uh, Dayog. Um, Dayog the Mighty, remember him or her? I don't remember if did was Dayog a man. It was Dayog the Blue. And Dayog yes, the is. Blue, right? Okay, <laughs> Dayog the Blue. Um, you have you are in bad. Uh, you're in a bad situation. The avatars of Carnifex are uh, kicking your ass, and it's time to take a planar step. So uh, Dayog the Blue uh, takes his planar step. Unfortunately, uh, he. Uh, is going to uh, have a real problem here. Maybe. Oh, no. He's, he has encountered a mishap. Yes. Mm. And that is going to be number 15 on the mishap chart, which is not that much fun. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> good thing it's not a 16. Yeah. 16. Well, we'll talk about 16 in a second. But uh, 15 is planar trait. Spellcaster picks up or takes on planar traits reflective of the destination plane based on a relatively simple... Oh, I was supposed to ask you first, Dayog, what pl- where you're going. Uh, where were you going to try to flee the avatars of Carnifex to? Well, clearly I want to go to the uh, gelatinous plane of goo. Oh, okay. Well, perfect. So <laughs> you have... Uh, you, you As if you're wearing a ring of gelatinous form, you start to take on the... Uh, Yes. So you. So anyway, that you take on the effects of your uh, form uh, should be the lesser effects are cosmetic in nature, more like the minor corruptions, and then as you go uh, forward, they they get stronger and stronger. So that kind of thing. But as you were saying, uh, at the highest, at the worst result, uh, sixteen on the D sixteen of the mishap table. Death to the caster and anyone traveling with him. I especially like throwing everybody under the bus. <laughs> Fate can be cruel at times, and this is one of those times. Summon new party. Yeah, due, due to transplanar dynamics and or physical stresses placed upon the caster at the time of casting, the spellcaster dies unceremoniously, saving throw oh, optional. Optional. That's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you, John. Very old school. We love it. Uh, 
Now we turn to Florin, who's who's also fighting the avatars of Carnifex. Wait, um, real quick before we move on, I'm going to ask you guys: Would you give the party a saving throw? And if so, would it be one saving throw for the whole party, or do or could some save and some not? They um, all have to. I'm going to take them into AD and D, make them all save versus death magic. I'd give everyone but the caster a save. <laughs> Ooh, I like Jen's answer better. Caster already screwed the pooch. Sorry. <laughs> well said. All right. All right. Florin. Uh, Wait, I forget. Was Florin was was Florin a wizard or an elf? Yeah. Uh, our. I was pretty sure it was a wizard. Okay. Because we both had to be wizards. But um, I see that the astral encounter table is in a different book. So is the ethereal encounter table. So I should probably not go either of those places. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have a different planar encounter altogether. So obviously, because mm-hmm. there's encounters and mishaps, I'm I'm not gonna roll on the to see which one you get. But rather, I'm gonna do Transylvania. I'm gonna do a special. Oh, and you got a basilisk or cockatrice. So you have uh, wandered up encountering a uh, hmm a cockatrice, I guess. They're they're the the, you, the weird rooster things that turn you to stone, right? From the uh-huh. f- yeah. yeah, okay, so yeah, yeah. Ask Brian Maley about those. That was two games ago. <laughs> I think uh, I think all. I don't know, you know. So Dayog ended up taking on some goo uh, characteristics, and uh, Florin had an encounter with a cockatrice that was totally unplanned. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sounds sounds like a little. So one is goo, the other is stone. Oh, yeah. That fits. Whatever, I'm stone, you're goo, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. What most intrigued me about this was the page after that article. It has this really cool kind of comic book looking cover from Moon Dice Games, and it's got Julian's name on the cover. Uh, what? The Oblivion Syndicate. Oh, and that the thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, that's the adventure I did for this, the Crawl Jammer adventure. And I got to say, looking at this adventure, which actually I think holds up great. I mean, it's only been like three years. It's not like it was a lifetime ago. I mean, it wasn't on my list, but it's in the noteworthy mentions. <laughs> well, let me just say this. I'm hanging the, the cover art in my house. Uh, I bet. And yeah, Fred Daly did like three illustrations and they are effing phenomenal. Yeah. Um, They're all really sweet. And I had a blast just looking back through this and looking at Fred's art, which is just, you know, Hmm. is is just excellent. So that was really fun. And I think this adventure pretty fun. I was actually thinking again of running it at uh, Gen Con or something because it's a it's a fun little I think it'd be a good little con adventure. And yeah. speaking of art, the opening Pogue piece for To the to Halls of Valhalla and Back yes. Again is also really stunning. And what's also interesting is this almost feels like this is a Pogue channeling Mullen. Like something about hmm. like the yeah. like the, the shapes and like the kind of like long swooping lines also feels very Mullen. So it's it's and the white space. So page yeah. twenty page twenty-four. Yeah. I will say that um I really agree that it's a it's a super cool piece, but it's to me it feel I think it's just my bad old man eyes. I it would be so much better if you had a bigger reproduction of it, even if it was just like filled the page in the landscape wise or something. Mm, yeah, like it almost looks like it could be another version of the end sheets in a DCC book. Yeah. Anyway, very yeah, it's a very cool picture. 
rolling a D3. Yay! I got a three. So Ooh, this is my up. final my final contribution, which is what's this crap? A self-generating <laughs> CRUD toolkit by Victor Garrison and Forrest Aguirre. So let's go ahead and pull this up. Now I'm just kind of sticking with a theme this adventure th- this this episode. We I'm had noticing. our um, our oozy and slimy ring and our oozy and slimy adventure. And what's this crap? The D30 crud creature. Oh, no, not crud creature companion. The D30, the self-generating crud toolkit is mm-hmm. a way for you to randomly generate crud. And crud could be molds, slime, fungi, algaes, lichen, uh, snail ooze, slug ghoul, slug goo, uh, living unctuous grimes, etc. So uggy. And that carries through pretty much the rest of that volume, doesn't it? It does. It's a pretty massive, uh, massive piece here, but it's really fun. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and we're going to roll up a random crud. So rolling my D30, the first one I roll is a 29. So we're going to look at what kind of goo or kind of crud this is. Um, Getting to 29, we've got the hag bear. And a (laughs) hag bear, hag bears are found in swamps underground streams and stagnant lakes and pools. These hairless creatures, when mature, are the shape and size of an adult grizzly bear, but their faces resemble that of a blobfish. They have no bones except their massive skulls, which house incredibly strong jaws and shark-like rows of teeth. The beasts are never encountered out of water because their limbs, while strong and inescapable in water, lack a skeleton, making them incapable of supporting their weight on dry land. They're fast, angry, and aggressive, and it goes on to tell us more about the hag bear. But we're also going to go ahead and roll a D50 to find out more about its color and texture. Yeah, now, how can you have no bones and have a jaw? That's what I want to know. D50s. Uh, cartilage? Tendons? So I got an 08. So its color and texture is thin, sinewy, red, and black fibers, fibers intertwined, moving in a slight but jumpy, skittering motion. So that's pretty pretty tricky. Now we're going to roll a D50 to find out the crud effects. So let's go ahead and find out what the the crud does. Causes paranoia, 18. The PC must make a DC 16 personality check for each person in the room, or the PC thinks that the person is trying to kill them. (laughs) Okay. Now we're going to roll a D50 odor description generator (laughs) to find out more about its odor. Wow. Yeah. So, um, first I'm going to roll a D4 to find out its odor's um, intensity. We got a three. (laughs) It's got a strong identification of smell. OMG, you smell exactly where it is coming from. Uh, DC 10 fort save or nausea and gagging occurs, minus two to initiative rolls. That's fair. And finding out what it smells like. 39. It smells malty. Hmm. Malty. Malty. And now yeah. we're going to find out the name of, yeah. this, of this crud creature here. So D50 twice. I got a 20, which is Wait, beer. Um, it's proper ear? name, you mean? Like this one? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yes. Oh, okay, got it. Ear 11. Ear hand. 
So this is Earhand the the Hag Bear. Earhand the Hag Bear. Oh my god. <laughs> Okie dokie. I like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, so we have just generated some crud. So now <laughs> what I would say is combine these three things together. If you want to run the Orm Lies Down in Punjar, I think you also need to include a random crud that you generate <laughs> on the fly at the table. And that thing has the ring of gelatinous form. And uh, you, and it should yeah. be lawful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that is my last one. Now we're going to roll. Um, we're going to do, and it's Jen and Julian. Uh, Jen, what do you like better, odds or evens? Uh, odds. I rolled Vegas. a 10. So Julian, and- we're going to go with yours and we'll finish up the episode with Jen's. Woo-hoo. All right. Well, uh, if it's I'll get the most disturbing one out of the way, if it's my last <laughs> pick, I, so this I want to say this is uh, I sat down and read volumes one to six, uh, at least you know, kind of careful, you know, skim slash read them, and this is the very first item in um, volume one. And just like in 2015, Gong Farmer uh, Almanac, the f- best one is the first one in the first volume one. Um, <laughs> haha, just a little Gong Farmer yeah. humor for you. Haha. Yeah, sure. Anyway, um, but it is the Hot Dog Suit, a low class class for DCC RPG. I will, no, and I'll, okay, all kidding about uh, my Assassin class aside and everything else. Uh, I love this class. And in fact, I love it so much. I'm a hundred percent going to include it in my Carcosa game of all different crazy weird classes, along with the Clown Knight and probably some weird Terror of the Stratosphere stuff and other gray aliens and all kinds of and uh, Bronx beasts and other stuff. So uh, it it is exactly what it sounds like. You are a loser. Uh, okay, I'm just going to read this. I'm I'm going to read the. Uh, introductory text. You're no reaver, no cut purse, no heathen slayer. You're a screw-up. Have been your whole (laughs) life. The clearest example, you fell through some kind of dimensional portal or whatever while wearing nothing but a hot dog suit. The guy next to you had a chainsaw and a hand grenade. Some other dude had nunchucks and Chuck Taylors. The woman in the business skirt, even she had a mace and a holdout pistol. You, you have your hot dog suit and that's it. Get ready to kill monsters with flyers for Mr. Peppy's Sandwich Shack. <laughs> so uh, that is inspired. Oh, it's yes. really good, and it's um, so you get a D6 hit points, and you don't get any armor be because you're wearing a hot dog suit, but it does give you some armor protection. Uh, action dice. You are lucky to even have a D20 action die. <laughs> Count your blessings. <laughs> maybe maybe my favorite paragraph in the entire thing. And by the way, this is super funny and well-written and, and cool. But it's also, uh, I think, we're going to find out, but I believe that it's entirely playable. Um, but uh, another, another quality, baffle. When combat starts, and when wearing the hot dog suit, assuming that's not all the time, a hot dog <laughs> suit gains plus 2d6 to their AC. No one oh, no one, and no thing can quite figure out what to make of the hot dog suit. Sometimes, on a 1 in 12, creatures with a low intelligence are completely freaked out by the hot dog suit and will not attack the hot dog suit for any reason, staying no less than 20 feet away from it, if at all possible. Um, you also have pink paper flyers that you can shoot like little uh, missiles to try to give paper cuts to with. 
and um, <laughs> and it just kind of goes on in that vein. It, it's all great. There are some in, very funny and cool uh, little luck powers. And uh, another thing is you're ignored and overlooked because nobody takes you seriously, so you can pick up information easier than other characters. But the best yeah, I love part... That. The judge should totally be giving you information that other characters would have to pay for. Right. <laughs> but the best part is... Uh, after four levels of the hot dog suit, the loser has proved that maybe he's not such a waste of space after all and can take a level of any other class into which the judge allows him to advance. He assumes the action dice and crit tables of the new class, but adds his hot dog suit attack bonus and saved to those of the new class, and so on and so <laughs> forth. So it actually has, only has advancement up to uh, level four. Uh, and I think this was a Byring Stowe... Uh, 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 so yeah, it's it's really lovely. Um, right. and yes, right. we'll be uh, we'll be running that at a con near you. Oh, there's even a little bit of art. Yes, from uh, from John in there. Uh, yeah, the more luckier bastard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's so various good. luck powers as well, and it's uh, I could talk all night. I'm I'm quite taken. It might be tied for the with the clown knight for my favorite class at this point. Clown Knight being you know, in America, I, I think. I will admit the art was a little eh when I first opened it, but now digging into it, yeah, okay. That one's going to grow on me. Yeah. <laughs> like a fungus. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we've got a D1 left, and in, looks like I rolled a one. Uh, yeah, it's a great segue because my choice is also from Bygunstow, also known as John Wilson. Uh, from volume five beyond the portal under the stars because we have so many people writing in and none of us could remember exactly which volume it was in you want the follow-up to portal under the stars this is going to get you going so that lovely little uh message that you were given at the end of the portal under the stars as you find the the goodies you know presuming you didn't tpk Begins with, they say a dryad has been seen in the forests east of here. And so there's the lovely encounter things where you actually are faced with the true dryad. Who essentially, in order to no longer be a a lowly zero level farmer and make that step to, you know, from zero to first level character... Maybe a little bit of digging into your character is necessary for this dryad to say, okay, you're worthy. Uh, One of the next parts of the sage advice there was ignite it with the spark of a living fire. So finding fire isn't a problem. Imbuing that fire with life, now that's a problem. It may take some time to discover how to do this. You may wish to run other adventures while the party is keeping their ears open for some clue on how to bring a fire to life. Yeah, I I love John's writing in this. Um, So there's options of how the information can ultimately be dropped into their hands. And the secret of how exactly to complete this task. And essentially, once the PCs have the living fire... They must keep it burning until they can set up the copper brazier with the wood from the Dryad's Grove, and combining those elements reveals the location of the other half of the rod, as described in Portal Under the Stars. So what happens when the other half of the rod is discovered? Oh, he's going to leave us hanging and he's going to make us look for the next year's GFA before we can get to the rest of it. 
But does, you know, that's going to be good enough for two or three sessions for your party. Does he? Does he actually do it in the next years? We're on the green volume, so I don't know. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I might know, but way to keep our Spellburn listeners in suspense. Well, at least we can stave off those of them that keep writing in saying, what do I do after this? Well, here's a couple options. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Very cool. So that is our episode, guys. Were there any like honorable mentions that you really wanted to give a shout out to before we close up? I mean, obviously, that, that piece by Fred for Julian's oh, uh, the, Carl Jammer adventure. Yeah. Um I I liked the um I liked the some guy named Judge Bob who I've never heard from again. His <laughs> his brown Jenkin familiar thing was, and his coagula. You want to talk about Iggy? His coagula. So he has uh in volume one he has a uh, different types of familiars things. Brown Jenkin from uh, of course uh, the dreams in the witch house and uh, but the coagula is a blood-based um, coagulated amorphous blood creature, so... Oh, yeah. Blood spilled uh, by 10th-level wizards during a phlogiston disruption. Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't... There, There's a lot of cool stuff. I mean, it wasn't especially easy to pick from. Uh, there, no. There's a, a fair amount of cool stuff. The Spellburn rules was definitely kind of a close... Uh, hit for me as one of the things I really was thinking about taking and uh, I, I don't know I think that and was if you want to take a really deep dive I think uh, volume 5 is the one I'm in here oh I Let also make sure. I was also volume 1 also has the fantasy food generator which oh, yeah. the, that, that looked I was thinking that maybe Florin and Dayog would have dinner and end up eating like barbecued, <laughs> you know, oogie slug not, or something. I'm not eating anything that Keith Garrett wrote up. Thanks. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, that that may be a future maybe we might have a food episode at some point. Well, I mean I guess it could happen. Sure. Everyone likes to do delve into the minutia every now and then sure once we uh, run out of you, every other topic that sounds like a great one right uh if our listeners are looking for something a little bit crunchier there's a mini dungeon in here uh the sulkian crawl by mark bruner and oh, yeah. it's inspired by the mayan calendar mm. so there's ta- i mean pages of tables here with the lists of deities descriptions and curses and that that seems pretty cool as well and it's yeah it's pretty chunky because there's more tables with encounters and some full page art and it's a little smaller tight and i'm getting a little old for this so yeah but there that one looks fun it just looks like something that i'm gonna have to grab the pdf and actually print in large scale and for me since i was sticking with kind of my ookie goopy theme um, the one there was one I really did want to do, but it didn't fit the theme, so I opted not to do it. But that's the Crom deity write-up. Oh. Um, I thought that one was fantastically done, and I remember when I first saw that write-up. That's when I fell in love with the idea of deity-specific disapproval tables because mm. that disapproval table is fantastic, and oh, yeah, yeah, it really it it's done so well, and it it really does 
highlight the need for deity specific disapproval tables and a stunning uh, piece by Benjamin Mark. Yeah. All right, folks, that's our episode. That is your your Gong Farmers Digest of 2016. We've uh, given you our abridged version of it. Uh, So if you want to say hello to us, send us an email, whatever, you can email us at theband at spellburn.com. Please rate and review us at iTunes. Um, Thank you, Harrison, for your great bumper on this episode. If anybody else would like to send us some bumpers or even some new, um, you know, like Tavern Talk or some email bumpers, please, that'll be fun. And you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on MeWe. Well, we're kind of uh, individually, we're on MeWe. Spellburn itself is on Twitter. Uh, The individual folks are on MeWe and on Facebook, hanging out in the DCC Rocks community. And really, I think that's about it. So, all right, everyone, game on. You've been listening to Spellburn. Copyright 2017. Theme song has been graciously provided by Glitter Wizard. Learn more at glitterwizard.fancamp.com.